Now, tonight, as we continue in our topic of um, eschatology, of uh, the doctrine of last things, and we're dealing in this uh, fall with personal eschatology, and we'll deal with more uh, issues of general eschatology in in the spring. But we come uh, tonight, uh, last time we were looking at annihilationism, and tonight... uh, we want to look at the doctrine of hell uh, and then we'll come back to this again uh, in two weeks time now um, as I was and this is a very brief outline forgive me this evening briefer than uh, normal Um, as I was thinking about this today I I thought who would who would turn up to uh, a lesson uh, on hell. It was advertised. Some of you didn't realize, maybe. You didn't check. And uh, when I pray and, and we have our eyes closed, you may, you may leave, perhaps, at uh, the thought of it. But seriously, I mean, who would, who would want a lesson on hell? It's not something we would probably choose. Um, it's not something that we want to think about or talk about, unless, of course, it is real, unless, of course, hell exists, unless, of course, it dominates, which it does, the preaching and teaching of the Lord Jesus, because no one spoke about hell in the Bible more than Jesus did. So let's pray together as we, uh, as we begin our lesson. Our Heavenly Father, in the gospel, we most certainly have been saved from hell. We believe that it exists because Jesus taught us that it exists. And tonight as we as we think about it, and we think about it perhaps in a cerebral way, we think about it in a logical way, we also want to think about it with the engagement of our hearts and affections and realize afresh that this is a place to be shunned and we want to be sure and certain of where our final destiny will be. For you have promised in the scriptures a heaven, a new heavens and a new earth for those who love you and trust you and find themselves in union and communion with the Lord Jesus. So bless us, we pray, and uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm going to walk through um, uh, the doctrine of hell, and uh, the first thing I want us to think about is uh, Jesus, and I'm going to focus um, exclusively uh, just now on uh, Jesus' testimony uh, to the reality of uh, eternal punishment. 
Uh, and to begin uh, with the fact that it provides the background and explains the significance for Jesus' coming. Uh, think of the most well-known text in our time, that would probably be John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So that the purpose of the coming of Jesus, the purpose of the gift of God's Son is to avoid perishing. And we've already seen uh, two weeks ago that perishing doesn't mean annihilation. Perishing doesn't mean obliteration. That perishing belongs to a class of words and ideas that is associated with eternal punishment, a, a conscious eternal punishment. So that in the background to the narrative of why it is that Jesus came into the world was, is, is this fact to avoid eternal punishment. So, so John, uh, John 3.16 and then uh, a, little, a little further in John uh, 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then at the end of the chapter, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So there's a real possibility of our punishment. Um, there, there exists this real possibility of punishment, of being under the wrath of God. Uh, and that is the reason why, uh, why he comes. Now there is, in addition to that, not just the possibility of it, but there is the, the absolute certainty of it for those who do not believe in the gospel, those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus. The only exception that is made in uh, the Reformed faith in the Westminster Confession, uh, th there are two exceptions, and that is children who die in infancy and those who are unable to understand, who have cognitive inabilities in understanding and comprehending the gospel. And uh, so the Westminster Confession in 10.3 uh, makes uh, uh, an exception for those two categories, but only those two categories. It doesn't make an exception, for example, for those who have never heard the gospel, for those who live, say, in a remote place but have never heard the gospel. There, there, there is no exception made for them in the Reformed faith. And that because of passages like Romans 10, how shall they hear without a preacher and so on, and, and of the emphasis on the Bible of, of, of mission and evangelism and the need uh, to make that gospel known. So uh, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, I mean, apart from the gospel, there's not only the possibility 
of eternal punishment, but the certainty of it, the, the absolute certainty of it. It is the burden of Jesus' teaching. Many of the parables, perhaps the majority of the parables, divide mankind into two. The two ways. The way of life, the way of death. Reflecting the two paths of the first psalm. And one thinks of uh, narrow is the way and, and broad is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life and so on. So in the parables, and uh, let, let's, let's think of, let's think of uh, the, the parable of the weeds or the parable of the wheat and tares in uh, Matthew 13 uh, and at verse uh, 30. And forgive me, I haven't got these verses quoted. I've, I've purchased a new Bible software that I do not understand. And, and, and I need some basic help. And, and as basic as, how do you cut and paste a text from this new Bible software? Uh, I've only had it a week and I haven't had time to look at it. So Hence, I couldn't paste these texts. So I, I'm, I'm having to read them to you. Uh, but in uh, Matthew 13 and verse, uh, and verse 30, uh, this is the parable of the weeds Uh, Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So so there are two ways and two ends, two ways and two goals, two ways and two distinct eschatological pictures here. One of a picture of burning... And uh, another, a, a picture of gathering and putting in a barn. Or a, li- a little later in Matthew 13, uh, at verse uh, 47, this is the uh, parable of, the, of the, uh, the net. Kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore, sat down, sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it'll be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a, it's a very graphic um, uh, picture, isn't it? Uh, a, a fishing boat. Not, uh, not the kind of fishing that you do now. You know, but I mean... A, an industrial fishing boat, and, and you've got men sorting out fish. They're sliding down, perhaps some, some sort of slide, and, and, and they're pulling out. You know, good fish are going down into a tunnel tube somewhere, and the rest are being thrown overboard. You can tell I've never been on a fishing boat, but, but, but it's a very graphic picture, sorting out one from the other. But there's a, there's a distinctive separation in the end of of the righteous and then those who are thrown into the fiery furnace where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or in the Olivet uh, Discourse, Matthew 24, 25, some more parables, Matthew 25 and verse 10, the, the, the um, parable of the ten virgins, 
And then in verse 10, while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins come also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know not uh, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And, and, and the separation. Two ways. There's the way of the righteous and there's the way of the, of the unjust. Uh, and then uh, Matthew 25, 41, the final judgment. Uh, and uh, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his... Uh, angels, sheep and goats, left hand, right hand, eternal life, eternal punishment. And, and those are just a few examples. And uh, you might say, but those are parables. And parables are stories and parables are pictures, which they are. They have a sting in the tail. You have to think about that a little. But, but they do. They have a sting in the tail. In the telling of it, there's a sting. There's a punchline. And part of the punchline of these parables, these vivid pictures that Jesus drew, is a separation of the just and the unjust, those who believe, those who don't believe, sheep and goats. And, and behind the picture lies a reality. It also explains the anguish of our Lord's passion. Well, think about it. What does the cross mean? What does it mean for Jesus to die on the cross? What, what, what are we supposed, how are we supposed to understand the crucifixion of Jesus? And the crucifixion of Jesus is, of course, something that needs interpreting. In and of itself, it says different things to different people. To the Greeks, it was, it was foolishness, and to the Jews, it was an offense. The Jews saw somebody who was condemned by God, and the Greeks saw somebody, just another fool, just another pretender, a messianic pretender and who got what was coming to him. But how do we look at the crucifixion, the event? It's, a, it's an act of capital punishment from one point of view. But what is it? And, and think of Galatians 3.13, uh, that Christ was made a curse for us. He's thinking about the cross. He's thinking about what the cross means. He's thinking about the crucifixion of Jesus. And what is it? How do we interpret it? It is, it is a curse. Jesus is cursed by God. He, he receives the curse. And all that that means. Signified in the baptism of Jesus. Um, the two pictures of baptism in the New Testament, in Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, it's the drowning of the Egyptians in the Red Sea and the deliverance of, of the Israelites. So the Israelites receive the blessing of deliverance and, and the Egyptians receive the water ordeal of judgment. Baptism is a sign of, of judgment. A water ordeal of judgment from which we are rescued. 
Peter uses a different picture. He uses the picture of uh, Noah and the ark in, in, uh, in his epistle. Again, the waters are a symbol of judgment. Apart from Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, who were saved from the water ordeal of judgment, the rest of humanity received that judgment. Jesus took the judgment. He took the curse. Something similar, I think, in the circumcision of Jesus. What is that curse? That curse is the anathema of God. That, that curse is the, is the enduring hostility, wrath of God against unforgiven sin. That's what hell is. It is, it is being permanently under the curse of God. So that explains why, why Jesus is so anguished in his passion. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. You know, there have been Christians who have approached death and a horrible death, and they've, and they've approached it with, with equanimity, and they've approached it with resilience, and they've approached it with heroism. And we love to tell stories from the 17th century, perhaps, of the Covenanters who faced horrible death, the two Margarets, um, mother and daughter drowned at sea, and the mother was tied to a stake, a post. When the tide was out, further out, and when the tide came in, she drowned first, trying to get the daughter to recount as she heard the gurgling of her mother some, some yards behind her as the tide was coming in. Well, next time you go to Scotland and you think it's beautiful, you should visit. The, the, it's there. There's a monument for the two Margarets, two Covenanter uh, women who were executed in the killing times in the 17th century, who were defending their faith alone in Jesus Christ, alone defending the gospel, defending the, the, the Protestant Reformation that we're going to celebrate on Sunday. And, uh, uh, but Jesus, Jesus recoils, doesn't he? Because the nature of his death is, is different. It's not, it's not just an act of, of dying. It's dying under the curse and under the anathema of God. He was being cast into outer darkness. The outer darkness that we would otherwise receive apart from the gospel. The hell, and uh, different audiences here, but uh, this is the Wednesday lunch audience that I spoke to uh, today, but we were, doing the, we were doing the Apostles' Creed. So a few weeks ago, we were, we were talking about the descent into hell uh, clause. What does it mean when we, when we employ the language of he descended into hell? And at the very least, although I, I interpreted it a, a little more than this, but at the very least, it is experiencing the unmitigated wrath of God. That's what, that's what Jesus experienced on the cross. And it is what we, we would experience apart from faith in Christ. So, so hell and the existence of hell 
explains the anguish of our Lord's passion. It is also the burden of apostolic teaching about Jesus. So Paul, for example, in 2 Corinthians, and particularly in chapter 4, when, when uh, he talks about his, his role as an apostle and his, and his task and his, his message and the motivations that are his for preaching and so on, because he viewed men as perishing and facing eternal consequences of perishing. So that, so that as he says in, in, in 2 Corinthians um, 4 and at verse um, 3, he says, uh, even, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. To those who are perishing. They are already perishing, but, but apart from the gospel, they will perish forever. Now, there is an aspect in which we uh, understand, um, and Paul understands uh, the wrath of God as something that is present here, right now. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They hold the truth in unrighteousness. The, the wrath of God is revealed. People sometimes misunderstand what it is that Paul is saying. And they, they look at the world and they look at contemporary society and they look at culture and they see terrible things happening. And, and, and because these terrible things are happening, they then draw the conclusion, God is going to come and judge. But my friends, the terrible things that are happening are in themselves the judgment of God. They are in themselves the expression of God's wrath. But there is also a future, uh, a future wrath. And... Uh, let me pick up a verse here, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And we were looking at this uh, in, in the summer. Uh, let me go back to uh, verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's a beautiful statement of what it is that has happened in the church at Thessalonica. They have turned to God from idols. It's, it's one of these repentance words. What, what has happened to the believers at Thessalonica? They've, they've turned. They were serving idols. Now they're serving God. And in so doing... They have been saved, they've been delivered from the wrath to come. There is, a, there is a present wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is the reflex of His holiness towards sin. God is so pure that He cannot look upon sin. There is a present wrath, but there is a coming wrath, a future wrath. In the gospel, we're delivered from it. We need not fear the wrath of God. What a what an amazing thing to say. What a beautiful thing to say. In the gospel, we need not fear the wrath of God. 
But if you don't have Christ, if you don't believe the gospel, there is a coming wrath, there is a coming judgment. Uh, and that wrath is uh, punitive and eternal. Second uh, Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. Let me go back to a context here. And uh, he's saying in verse 5, this evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there it is. It's very clear. When Jesus comes, to some he, he will say, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom which was prepared for you and the angels from before the foundation of the world. But to others he will say, Depart from me. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believed, and in verse 8, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. Who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, there is a coming wrath and it is eternal. And then uh, perhaps uh, the book of uh, Revelation, uh, which is a book... Uh, uh, about Christ. It is a testimony. These are Jesus' own words containing letters that, he, that Jesus wrote to churches in Asia Minor, but also uh, glimpsing uh, for us uh, uh, the, the, the nature and character of the Lord Jesus and that extraordinary vision in chapter 6 of the Lamb uh, who, is, uh, who is sitting on a throne as one uh, who has been slain, as one who has his throat cut, and in verses 15 to the end, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Uh, the day of judgment. The great day of judgment has come. Uh, portrayed in music, for example. Uh, somebody was talking about Verdi's Requiem today. And uh, the portrayal of the day of judgment uh, mu musically. Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Um, the great day of wrath has come. And... Uh, and uh, graphically portrayed here with uh, calling on mountains and rocks to fall on them and hide them from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the, the wrath of the Lamb. It's a strange metaphor, isn't it? Uh, if you've ever held a little lamb in, in your arms, as I, as I have done many times, though it's now almost half a century ago, but, but I, I still remember holding little lambs, and, and little lambs are defenseless. They, 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 they're completely defenseless. 
the wrath of the Lamb. He's the Lamb of God, but he's also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's also Aslan, whose roar is terrifying when aroused, uh, and so on, and uh, other, other similar uh, depictions in the book of Revelation. Well, um, the testimony of Scripture to, uh, to um, eternal punishment and, and the coming wrath. Now, there are objections uh, to this idea. One comes from conditionalism, which we looked at last week, uh, two weeks ago, and so-called an, uh, annihilationism, um, that apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you, you are annihilated. So there is no, there is no wrath, really, to, f- to fear. There's certainly no uh, conscious eternal punishment, and we, we looked at that two weeks ago. But another source, of course, of objection comes from universalism. Uh, the idea that everybody is saved. And you can trace this back to um, the Apostolic Fathers and, and particularly to Origen um, uh, and uh, scholar and uh, theologian and, and uh, um, spent the first part of his career in Alexandria uh, in North Africa, died in the middle of the third uh, century uh, a phenomenal figure, an, an important figure for a whole host of reasons, um, but Origen um, advocating a, a doctrine of universalism that in the end everybody is going to be saved. And uh, whether, that, uh, whether that is uh, because uh, of a sentimentalized view that, the, that, that, that folk can't imagine, uh, that the love of God doesn't embrace everyone in the end, or perhaps a kind of post-mortem evangelism, Uh, a view that after death there is a second chance and so on and and another opportunity to believe in uh, the gospel. Um, Universalism uh, has to meet the criteria of Jesus' words about Judas being the son of perdition. Right, if, if Jesus' words are true about Judas, Judas is not in heaven. Judas is not saved. Judas is the son of perdition. He, he is in hell. That's Jesus' testimony about Judas. So, so on that score alone, universalism is not true. Hell exists and it's not empty because Judas is there. Um, what is fascinating, of course, about from another point of view about universal, the argument of universalism is that, as I put it here, it is semi-Pelagian before death and it is hyper-Calvinist after death. What I mean by that is that before death, everyone, everyone is on, well, not everyone, but, but, but lots of folk and lots of, of, of those who call themselves Christians who have an opinion here about hell and what the Bible does or does not teach about hell insist on something like free will. So that the basis of whether one is saved or not is, is entirely based upon free will, semi-Pelagianism. But of course, after death, it's no longer based on free will, because if it's still based on free will, you could still end up making the wrong choice. And if you're a universalist, everybody has to make the right choice, so God has to make that choice for them. 
So, so after death, it's a hyper-Calvinist situation, and before death, it's a semi-Pelagian situation. So, so the argument for, for, for universalism um, changes, changes drastically from before to after death. That's just a, a, a sort of tangential point that may be of interest to some of you. You know, why the eloquent appeal of 2 Corinthians 5? Where Paul pleads and, and, and begs us to be ambassadors for Christ. To, 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 to preach the gospel as ambassadors for Christ. Why the, why the eloquent appeal? Why the, why the emotion of 2 Corinthians 5? If in, at the end of the day, everybody's going to be saved. Because Paul didn't believe that everybody was going to be saved. Uh, another uh, aspect, and this is point number three, another aspect uh, of viewing the doctrine of hell is the issue of justice. Um, perhaps nowhere more eloquently argued than in, uh, sec- in the second chapter of, uh, of Romans. Um, the justice of God, that God is just. So, so, for example, in Romans 2 and verse uh, 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment, God's righteous judgment, His just judgment, His, His covenantal integrity will insist upon it. Sin has to be punished. God, God can't just pass by sin. At, at some point, justice has to be served, and it has to be seen to be served. God may forbear, he may be patient, but at, at, at a certain point, God's patience runs out, and, and justice prevails. Uh, in Romans 2, verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. According then, that judgment will be according to light. The standard of justice here is, is in accordance with light, light received. Those who have the law will be judged as those who had the law. Those who did not have the law will be judged as those who did not have the law. So, so there's a hint here that the standard of justice here, will depend, will depend upon the light that has been uh, received. Uh, in uh, in two, uh, Romans 2 and verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. Uh, in 2.16, uh, he says, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So, so reaching into secrets, that, that's the That'll be the nature of the justice. Jesus speaks of um, idle words and uh, cups of cold water and so on. God taking account of incidental things even. And that judgment is consistent with conscience. Um, 
Romans 2.15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and, and, and so on. That there's a sense of, we all have a sense of right and wrong to some degree. The, the, the rudiments like a fallen castle. The, the rudiments of right and wrong still remain. The, the rudiments of, of our image-bearing status as those created in the image of God are still there in the, in the remnants of the castle that at once was. So th- there's... There's a standard of justice that will operate in the judgment. Um, A judgment uh, in 2.16, uh, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. By Christ Jesus. Um, What an amazing thing then that God is so patient now. Uh, it's what Peter is addressing in Second Peter 3. God may be patient now. How amazing it is that God is so patient now. When you think about his justice, when you think about the inviolability of, of and integrity of his, of his nature, that he's patient now. As Jonathan Edwards says, in another world, he will cease to show mercy. He shows mercy now. But in another world, he will cease to show mercy and he will show justice. There's this famous line, Nondum considerasti quanti ponderis sit peccatum. You have not yet considered the the great, how great the weight of sin is. This is Anselm's uh, famous book, uh, Curdeus Homo. Uh, why, why, why the God-man? Why did Jesus become incarnate? And uh, until you have considered how great sin is, you will never appreciate the enormity of the gift that God has given to us in the gospel. Well, it's true also of hell. The degree degree to which we make light of sin is the degree to which we have skepticism towards hell or the justice of hell or the concept of hell. You need to think about your sin and what it really deserves. Because to the extent that we make light of it and excuse it and veil it is probably the extent to which we make light of and begin to question the rightness of hell. Well, what is the nature uh, of hell? And uh, I I have a number of uh, thoughts here. Separation from the presence of the Lord. Deprivation. The idea of being outside the final chapter of Revelation. There are those who are outside the new Jerusalem. There's inside and then there's outside. Being outside. Outside of God's fellowship. Outside of his presence. Outside of the reassurance of his love. Um, retribution. Uh, 
the, the idea of penal wrath and its pain, uh, recrimination, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Are those just pictures? Well, we want to consider that a little. Yes, we, we, we do want to consider that a little. Where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm does not die, where the fire is not quenched. Well, the metaphors. Depicting what? Well, depicting, depicting a reality, depicting a consciousness, disintegration, a lack of wholeness. The gospel brings peace, wholeness, togetherness, sense of purpose. Without the gospel, there's, there's no wholeness, there's no sense of purpose, there's no, there's no integration. Everything falls apart. And perpetuation, it is forever. Now, uh, we've only got a minute. How do we... How do we approach this? Um, how How do we talk about hell? And there's a famous uh, incident often cited. Uh, McShane has been, in the 19th century in Scotland, McShane has been preaching somewhere and he's telling his friend, uh, Bona, um, uh, what did you preach on? Bona asks and McShane says, uh, you preached on hell and Bona says to him, and did you preach it with tears? the very contemplation of it, the very thought of it, to to bring tears to our eyes. But we also need to talk about it and think about it and teach it, and preachers need to preach it faithfully, Christ-exaltingly, without embarrassment. It's, It's part of reality. It's part of existence. And with a motivation of, um, well, uh, let, let, me, let me quote Second Corinthians, uh, Second Corinthians 5, uh, 14. For the love of Christ controls us or constrains us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who might uh, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ constrains us. Um, uh, this is a statement from John Blanchard's uh, Whatever Happened to Hell. On December the 12th, 1984, dense fog shrouded the M25. Uh, this is a... a a circular motorway uh, going around London, basically. And uh, dense fog shrouded the M25 near Godstone in Surrey, a few miles south of London. And the hazard warning lights were on, but were ignored by most drivers. At 6.15 a.m., a lorry, a truck, carrying huge rolls of paper was involved in an accident. And within minutes, the carriageway was engulfed in carnage. Dozens of cars were wrecked. Ten 
people were killed. A police patrol car was soon on the scene and two policemen ran back up the motorway to stop oncoming traffic. They, they waved their arms and shouted as loud as they could, but most drivers took no notice and raced on towards the disaster that awaited them. The policemen then picked up traffic cones and flung them at the car's windscreens in a desperate attempt to warn drivers of their danger. One told how tears streamed down his face as car after car went by and he, wanted, and he waited for the sickening sound of impact as they hit the growing mass of wreckage further down uh, the road. And that's a, a description of a, an incident that happened uh, in 1984. Well, it's also a depiction of what's happening every day as people die without Christ and without the gospel. And, and you've got this scene of, of people warning them, imploring them, beseeching them to stop but they pay no heed. Father, we, uh, we thank you. Uh, thank you that we've been delivered from hell. Thank you that our Lord Jesus bore hell in his own body upon the tree for us that we might not have to go there. Now bless this to us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.